Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Monday, July 24th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Going back to Richard Nixon, eight of the past 13 vice presidents have gone on to secure their party's nomination for president. Mike Pence is trying to be the ninth. He is thus far not coming close, but he was on CNN's State of the Union being open, honest, earnest, and frank. Well, not really actually being those things, but saying he was those things. I know I did my duty that day under the Constitution. And uh, frankly, as we traveled across New Hampshire this week to uh, 10 events in communities uh, across the state, I I was deeply moved at how many people expressed their appreciation to me for the stand that we took uh, for the Constitution. Frankly, as we traveled, I was moved at people expressing appreciation. I liked all the compliments, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. So I guess he's leveling with us that he enjoyed being patted on the back by his supporters, you know, giving him support. Okay, I guess maybe you could say he's a man of a certain age, he's uncomfortable with emotions, so it is being frank, he normally wouldn't be that honest with us to disclose that the people like him and support him, his supporters, at least those people. But you know, is he old? Is he that much of a man of a certain age? He's younger than Michelle Pfeiffer, so he's not terribly old, but perhaps old enough that he has to tell us if he's being honest, because he did so again question is, if a doctor looks at a woman's ultrasound, sees her fetus is missing parts of its skull and a brain, and I, and I bring that up because it's a real scenario that a woman testified to in Texas this week, you're saying that the woman should still have to carry that child to term even if there's no chance the baby would survive? Well, let me be clear about this because we've we got to be very clear on language. Mm-hmm. Look, I, I'm, I'm pro-life. Uh, but I've always recognized uh, and accepted abortions in tragic circumstances, rape, incest, the life of the mother. And, and candidly, Dana, in cases like an ectopic pregnancy where the child simply cannot uh, survive, I would assume that that would be covered by the life of the mother exception. How is that candid? How does candor come into play in that you're being candid about ducking the actual situation that Dana Bash cited, which is a real life situation. It really happened. The woman or the fetus had a condition known as allobar holoprose encephaly, in which the fetus's brain doesn't develop into two hemispheres like normal, and the major structures of the brain remain fused in the middle, and she was denied an abortion. So Pence changed that horrible situation to ectopic pregnancy, which is protected as a life of the mother clause, although there's still confusion about do we give a woman experiencing ectopic pregnancy proper treatment. The Texas Medical Association said that 
confusion resulted in, I'll quote the Texas Tribune, quote, several hospitals in the state have turned away or waited to treat patients with pregnancy complications, including a physician in Central Texas who was allegedly instructed by a hospital to not treat an ectopic pregnancy until a rupture occurred. Such a rupture can be life-threatening. And the alabar holoprosencephaly would, by the way, according to doctors, lead at best to a live birth where the baby survives for maybe a couple of weeks and dies a terribly painful death. So I wouldn't use the word candidly to describe your answer, Mike Pence, nor frankly, is this coming up next a good use of frankly? I think creating a minimum national standard for after a child is able to to feel pain in the womb, uh, is an idea whose time has come. Frankly, it's supported by an overwhelming majority of the American people. That is not how you use frankly. There is no personal disclosure or personal revelation involved in citing a poll. Also, according to the AP, 51% of those surveyed said they do support legal abortion in 15 weeks. Gallup said a slight majority favored illegalizing abortion in 15 weeks, but you know, Mike Pence's candor or frankness has nothing to do with either poll. And I'm going to say that either poll might not have much to do with the actual attitudes of America if they're living under a regime where there is abortion banned at 15 weeks. Dana Bash, who did the interview, did engage in a follow-up and then a follow-up to the follow-up, not on those frank evasions, but when she asked, do you have the 40,000 donors to qualify for the debate? He didn't answer, and then he didn't answer again. But at least he wasn't saying that he was being frank in not answering. So I guess there's still some areas that the press will press Mike Pence on, even if Mike Pence is but a former VP who seems destined to have that title as the loftiest appellation he will ever earn. I don't know if Mike Pence creates some kind of force field of faux sincerity by tone and steely-eyed gaze. Probably the haircut helps. Or I don't know, maybe there's just no use in following up on his evasion since the guy's clearly going to lose. Candidly, I'm not unhappy about that. Frankly, I think someone should call Mike Pence out. Realistically, I don't expect that to happen. On the show today, Florida standards, how they teach slavery. But first... There have been some recent shakeups at the places we tune into to watch and read about sports, ESPN, the New York Times, the whole industry is undergoing a change. The New York Times, they recently axed their entire sports desk. I discussed these topics with John Arand, one of my go-to reads on all things sports business, ESPN, New York Times, John Arand, up next. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Sometime last month was the day sports media died, and then two days later was the next day sports media died. What happened, and this is part of an ongoing trend, is that Disney's ESPN cut staff, big names, Jalen Rose, Susie Colbert, and I think inexplicably to me at least, Jeff Van Gundy, who, if you're not a huge basketball fan, is just about the best basketball announcer on the planet. Still on the planet, no longer with ESPN. Couple weeks later, the New York Times eliminates their entire 
entire sports department. Sports is a driving force in media, but it's bedeviling the rights owners and the companies that are chasing these leagues that are making more and more money. As the people who broadcast sports seem to be making less and less money, it's all about the underlying economics. And to describe it all is John Arand, who writes for the Sports Business Journal and has an excellent podcast with Andrew Marchand. John, welcome is this your first time on the this gist? Is the very first time. I, I'm so happy to be on, Mike. I, I I will say that I define, you know, when I decide what topics to do on the gist, I naturally steer away from sports because though I'm interested in it, I calculate, oh, I don't know how much my listeners are, but they might be. And for me, these stories were all a societal story and a business story. So let's start with ESPN. That was the earthquake. Explain why Jeff Van Gundy, who's so good at announcing basketball, and some of these others were fired. I, mean, I will tell you, I think Jeff Van Gundy is the best game analyst in the NBA uh, yeah. right now. And uh, ESPN is going through... Um, well, Disney, this is all coming from Disney. Disney's going through a big cost-cutting uh, uh, exercise. Uh, they spent a lot on on streaming. Uh, they spent a lot on Disney+. Uh, Disney Plus. Uh, they were following the stock market, uh, which a couple of years ago were saying, you need to gain subscribers. And so the best way to gain subscribers is to spend a lot on content. And then all of a sudden they said, well, we need to see start to see some profits. And so the subscribers didn't... Uh, matter as much and uh and th so they had to start cutting and uh, espn what was a result of that um uh, but, yes, but to interrupt espn is unbelievably profitable but it's their other businesses like disney plus that's not profitable it, well so espn is is insanely profitable it's going to be less profitable next month and it's going to be less profitable next month because e espn is part of the the cable bundle and people are uh, people have if you're if you're you're not a sports fan, you almost certainly have already cut the cord and you've shed shed cable and you're starting to stream all everything via Netflix, you know, mm -hmm. Amazon Prime, Apple TV Plus and presumably uh, uh, Disney Plus as well. And that that's going to hurt and it has hurt ESPN more than others because they were getting the most money from cable operators, from satellite distributors, you know, the Comcast and the, and the DirecTV. And so essentially it was a great business for sports and it was a great business for, for sports media because, you know, your proverbial grandmother down the road who's not watching sports is helping yeah. su to subsidize sports fans like you and me who wanted to watch e ESPN. Right. They would charge everyone who got cable a lot, the most money. Am I right about that? ESPN was was the highest charge of any cable station. You couldn't say no. So it was being subsidized by the system, the cartel that was cable television. More but than $10 per subscriber per month, yeah. which is a uh, 100 million subscribers at one point. So that, that, that's clearing like tens of billions of dollars. Yes. Unbelievable. So it was a cash cow. They really, there was no such thing as a bad contract. And then there was, but why, so... What you're laying out is that the underlying economics of ESPN have gotten, while still, uh, while still remunerative or less obscenely remunerative, and guys like Jalen Rose, Susie Colbert, and Jeff Van Gundy take the hit. But what's the logic there? I mean, you could cut anyone. Well, the, you could save money so the, in the, lots the, of places. So, it, you know, if I'm running ESPN right now, uh, or the people that are running ESPN realize that the the things that bring the most viewers to ESPN, of course, are the live games. 
And so what they're going to do is they're going to spend, you know, more than $2 billion a year on NFL rights for mm-hmm. Monday night football, for some of the highlight rights and, and everything. They're going to spend a lot of money on college football. You know, they have deals with the, the SEC, they have uh, the ACC, the, the Big 12, uh, the NBA has their rights coming up in a little bit, and they're going to spend. They're going to have to spend a lot to keep the NBA. The people that you mentioned, Jalen Rose, uh, even Jeff Van Gundy, even though he was at the games, they're sort they're what they call shoulder programming. You know, they're they're not the game. So they they want to spend all their money on the live rights to live games because that's what people are watching, and everything else. You know, there are a couple of untouchables at, at ESPN. Stephen A. Smith, who who is you know certainly not live rights. Scott Van Pelt. Mm-hmm. You know, they they have certain talent that are there, but there's a lot lot more that uh, probably only five, six, maybe seven uh, um, on air personalities that are considered untouchable at ESPN. Yeah, and it seems like those personalities. I mean. There will still be an NBA Finals no matter who is on the microphone. And people will tune in if it's the Warriors versus whoever. And you could change, you could basically put anyone on the microphone, you'll get people to tune in. Now, I don't know if a, uh, if, if a, January Bucks versus Grizzlies game has the same appeal. Maybe announcers have some effect. But yeah, in terms of dollars and cents, there is certainly thinking within the industry that no announcer ever drives ratings and therefore maybe they're a fungible commodity. The thing yeah, I don't that, understand. That, that's, yeah. a very, that's a very consumer way of looking at it. And, and it's true. However, uh, when ESPN needed to improve its relationship with the NFL. It's really ESPN's relationship with the biggest sports league, the most powerful sports league in in the world. uh, What was went went sideways. They needed to improve it. And one way they did that was they spent a lot on bringing over uh, uh, Troy Aikman, Joe Buck, and really improving the booth. There's no evidence of this, but there's a, a lot of rumors that have been out that the NBA didn't particularly like Jeff Van Gundy. Uh, yeah. he, he was very critical about the league during the telecast. All I know is it was a great moment in the game, and we just brought a great game to a grinding halt for a 12 minute review. <laughs> what NBA fan wants, wants that? No one. If the game's for the fans, can we please speed it up? Now, very critical. So you and I call him the best announcer <laughs> because he didn't say basketball is bad or Adam Silver is evil or let's burn it all down. He said the amount of time they pause to look at instant replay for plays that doesn't matter is very boring to the viewer, which is 100% right. And that's why we like him. I should have taken the word very out. Thank you for that edit. <laughs> no, but still, I mean, it to me, it's the NBA, if it was the NBA who had a hand in this, being persnickety. Um, you know, that's a that's a pretty poor outcome, especially, as you say, contrasted with the fact that Troy Aikman gets $18 million. We just established no one ever tunes into a game for the announcer, yet some announcers who are, Troy Aikman's fine, I think he's good, but he's more or less carrying water for the league and doing PR. That guy gets rewarded with $18 million, and the truth teller, much more interesting broadcaster, gets fired. Yeah, Ed, I don't think, uh, I'm, I'm virtually certain that the NBA, Adam Silver did not call up Jimmy Pitaro, who runs uh, ESPN, and say, you have to take this guy off, no. off the games. But with these rights coming up 
and and they're going to have to negotiate and they want to keep the uh, ESPN, ABC. They want to keep the finals. They want to get the all-star game. They, they, they want to have a big part as Apple and Amazon and all these big, deep pocketed companies are, are coming at the NBA as well uh, for, for ESPN. It's like, well, do we want to keep this agi- uh, agitator? Is that a good word? Are you OK with sure. that? Yeah, not, irritant. Not, Irritant. <laughs> this, this burr in the saddle, this bee in the bonnet. Yes. <laughs> and so it's like, uh, if, if we want to be nice, to, let's sort of offer this olive branch, even though the the NBA is not act- actively actually pushing it. It's something yeah. that they know the NBA probably is, is happier with and not. So we haven't yet talked about the New York Times eliminating their sports section. People saw this coming because they also bought the online outfit, The Athletic. So they had hundreds and hundreds of reporters, sports reporters, and for some reason, The New York Times, well, not for some reason. So The New York Times has access to, or in its employer, hundreds of sports reporters and also the, you know, 40 legacy reporters on the specific New York Times sports desk. So is there a more complex analysis to, sorry, Tyler Kepner, baseball reporter who's excellent for the New York Times, but your job is de- was definitely, the, the death warrant was written for it the day the athletic deal was signed? Yeah, I mean, that, c- can you imagine a, a New York Times without t- Tyler writing about baseball? I mean, I mean, I love the New York Times sports section. You know, I love. I, they they, yeah. they zigged. They just decided they weren't going to do game stories, and they were going to do these, you know, New York Times stories for for, for the sports section. I think the w- what I've gathered from this is. You know, the day that they bought the the athletic, I mean, certainly you you saw this coming. This seemed to be a natural way to to move forward with it. But the the amount of communication or miscommunication between what management wants to do and what they're telling not only the reporters but the editors and the manage you know management at at, at the paper has has been just shockingly bad. The, the, you know, they they said that they're going to take the New York Times sports reporters and put them on the business desk. Mm-hmm. Well, the business editors had no they 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 didn't know about that plan until they saw you know the 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 release that came out. So there there is no like plan for what to do with the existing reporters, uh, or if there is a plan, it's a plan that they're you know sitting down and tr- trying to drum up right now. They're they're not having a very good. Uh, they're they're just not being open or transparent. And I I know the New York Times. Union is uh, accusing the the paper of union busting, and I have to say it because like, the athletic it, isn't unionized, so it's they not unionized. Jettisoned the union shop for a non union shop, and and it certainly appears you know to to be that way. I mean, it, it appears to be. Uh, I I so that's my that's my way of saying like I have no idea what's going on, Mike, over there because the, I don't think they know, <laughs> and I think that they're trying to to, to fill this out. Are we, are we going to start to see athletic game stories now in, in the New York Times? Because it's it's a uh, who knows it's uh, yeah. it, 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 it's a it's a mess, and it's it's sorry to see because I thought the New York Times sports section had a very good brand, and I thought that they they uh, were. I thought that they were really effective in uh, setting itself apart from the rest of sports media. Well, they were good at that, but that leads me to, I I think I can put my finger on some connective tissue between the two trends we're talking about and some other ones, which which is this. Sports are very popular in America, always getting popular, but what does that mean? I think what it means is the games. The games themselves, there's no one else minting these games, and the rights for these games are exponentially increasing and they drive interest. The culture of sports, the analysis around sports, not 
breaking down the games or talking about why Steph Curry made that pass or how Draymond Green set that pick, but just analyzing sports as a cultural entity, which is essentially what the Times Sports Desk leaned into. I mean, they didn't even care. They stopped covering the games and just started covering the culture around the games. And the ESPN, they'll do debate shows, but it used to be a lot about the culture of sports, and now it's just about the games. And I'll throw into this mix the fact that it's very, very hard. There are almost no really transcendent sports books and uh, you know the sports biography or the sports book that really captures our imagination, which to me says something about the culture of sports, and this is what I mostly talked about for NPR for 10 years, the culture of sports. There is, I don't know if there's less of an appetite, but it certainly hasn't matched the appetite for the actual sports. And anything other than the actual sports is, for, for whatever reason, not as appealing to the public as just watching the games. What do you think of that theory? Uh I'm going to push back on that a, a, a little bit because I, I think that the culture around sports is as big, if not bigger, than it's ever been. It's just being consumed differently, and it's being consumed on on, on uh, different mediums. Uh, and uh, you know, you go through social media, you know, uh, TikTok or Instagram yeah. uh, reels, and and that I think that's where people are finding the, the culture of sports, and they're finding it from the athletes themselves who can set up their own social media and say like, Hey, we're, we're going to let you into our culture. We're, we're going to let you behind the velvet rope to see what, what it's like to be an athlete here. I mean, I have a, a I have a 24 year old son and th th this is a big, this is a big issue that every league actually Mike is dealing with. I have a 24 year old son who is a, uh, a big sports fan, uh, probably as big a sports fan as I am, who consumes sports, even the live games, totally differently than I do. I, I sit down and I watch my big screen TV for two and a half hours, and I'm I'm plenty happy watching the story arcs of a, of a various game. You know, he follows the highlights on Twitter or social media, and and he 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 does like to go and see you know what's LeBron doing after the game, you know, or or, or something along those lines. So you know the. the uh, it doesn't really apply to what what uh, the New York Times did with their sports section, but I do think that this is a big problem of of a uh, of um, not a problem. It's a a, a trend of um, the the culture of sports just being available in so many other different areas. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I take your point. It is absolutely true. You know, TikTok and uh, social media are actually dominated by people who are talking about everything from sneakers to you know, Russell Westbrook is a fashion icon. I guess what I mean is more of there was, I think, in the 90s and aughts, a lot of writing about sports as a culture critic might, putting sports in the context of uh, what does it mean, finding meaning through it. You know, it takes smart thinkers, great writers, doesn't have to be a writer, could be someone expressing themselves, say, on a podcast or a TikTok video, but you hire a professional or maybe an amateur gains a following, but there's a lot of intellectual analysis that doesn't have to be highbrow, but really examining the meaning of these things. And I, the New York Times Sports Desk had a lot of that. And ESPN, you know, back when Olbermann and Patrick were on the, uh, the main show, had a lot of that. And I'm just seeing less of that. And I don't, or I don't know if I'm seeing less of it. I just think maybe it's less remunerative than um, the actual rights are. And so no, if you, look at, if you look at who, uh, 
if you look at who ESPN has hired for some of its studio shows, you know, back when, when you were talking about in the 90s or in the, in the early aughts, maybe they were journalists. They were Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon, who, yeah. who still host uh, PTI and did what you're talking about uh, now. They go, who has the biggest Q scores? It's recently retired athletes and they come in and they're not talking of sort of about the culture of sports. Uh, They're talking about the X's and O's of sports uh, and, and, uh, and trying to break down plays. And so there's been, um, you know, a a big change in terms of that. And ESPN will tell you that it's a combination of the fall of uh, newspapers there. Who's the Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon now at, at, at a uh, traditional media company? Uh, right, right. They, they they might exist, but uh, but but who knows? Uh, combined with you know, they're going after ratings. They're a TV company. The business is is, is ratings, and so they want to bring in you know the 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 most popular the 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 name that people know, and that's ex athletes. Yeah, they signed a huge deal with uh, the former punter and entertaining showman Pat McAfee. And twenty years ago, that deal would be or that. Um, hiring maybe, maybe 25, 30 years ago would be Tony Kornheiser, a guy with, I don't know, he's definitely Pulitzer nominated. I mean, and I'm not talking about credentials. I'm talking about the lens from which he views the game and informs us as the viewer. And it's just a totally different thing. You know, it's not like they never had lowbrow content or medium brow content. It's just how is ESPN, where are they shifting their resources? And it's clear that it's now the Pat McAfee era. Right. And, and and they will tell you that Pat McAfee and Stephen A. Smith are, you know, the uh, provocateurs. Are, yeah, are, but I think they're they, different. I think Stephen A. Smith, was he has a journalism background. You know, he breaks stories. He's become a showman and he's a really good communicator. But I think he's like pretty much in between uh, Will Bond and Kornheiser and what Pat McAfee is. Yeah, but uh, I think you could also say, uh, I mean, Pat McAfee has a, a show that goes on for four hours a day, and he was the only one. He had exclusive interviews with Aaron Rodgers and was breaking stories about Aaron Rodgers in, in, in a different way. I mean, I, it's, uh, I, but if, if, if I'm a uh, suit at ESPN, I'm going to say, like, Pat McAfee's breaking stories, too. He's just not doing yeah. it in the tradi- traditional journalism way that you and I grew up with. Yeah. John Orand is a media reporter for the Sports Business Journal and the co-host of the Marshand and Orand Sports Media Podcast. John, great to talk to you. Always happy to come on. For, this was my first time. I can't wait for the second, Mike. <laughs> it's when, yeah, it's when ESPN just uh, rebrands itself as the NFL Network 2. And now the spiel. The state of Florida, unlike most other states, doesn't just teach African-American history. They are mandated by a specific law that they do so. But how? The new education initiatives of Ron DeSantis are designed to garner headlines in the support of the portion of the population that senses an encroachment of woke ideology. 
That's what gives birth to such legislation as the Stop Woke Act. Now, the specific tenets of Florida's African-American study standards have become a national news story. It was impossible that they not. Our nation's first African-American vice president issued these comments. They want to replace history with lies. (laughs) Middle school students in Florida to be told that enslaved people benefited from slavery. (laughs) High schoolers may be taught that victims of violence, of massacres, were also perpetrators. I said it yesterday. They insult us in an attempt to gaslight us, and we will not have it. Here's the standard she's talking about. It's for middle schoolers. Instruction includes how slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Harris was having none of that. How is it that anyone could suggest that in the midst of these atrocities that there was any benefit to being subjected to this level of dehumanization? the midst of these atrocities, that there was some benefit. And yet, Charlie Cook, a Floridian, a conservative, and a columnist for National Review, asserts flat out, Kamala Harris is brazenly lying about Florida's slavery curriculum. That's the headline. This is a brazen lie, Cook says. It's an astonishing lie. It is an evil lie. It is so untrue, so deliberately and cynically misleading. So, Cook is talking about the standard that I read to you. It does say that. That standard is not lying. But Cook printed out dozens, maybe a hundred other standards that do not play down the atrocities of slavery. It instructs instructors to examine the Underground Railroad and how former slaves partnered with other free people and groups in assisting those escaping from slavery. Instruction includes the harsh conditions and their consequences on British American plantations. Example, undernourishment, climate conditions, infant and child mortality rates of the enslaved versus the free. Evaluate efforts by groups to limit the expansion of race-based slavery in colonial America. Examine different events in which Africans resisted slavery. Instruction includes the impact of revolts of the enslaved. Instruction includes how Spanish-controlled Florida attracted escaped slaves with the promise of freedom. Describe the contributions of Africans to society, science, poetry, politics, oratory, literature, music, dance, Christianity, and exploration of the United States from 1776 to 1865. This, in general, is not a denial of the horrors of slavery. Also, Sammy Davis Jr. was Jewish. And it also doesn't present the enslaved as passive in their plight, which was an error of earlier teachings. This is why Kelly Garcia, member of the Florida Board of Education, proclaimed at the meeting in which the standards were adopted. As a teacher, reading standards, that's my wheelhouse. I mean, I read these standards and I reread the standards and the emails kept coming. I was looking for what I was missing. Everything is there. The darkest parts of our history are addressed and I'm very proud of the task force and I can confidently say that here at the DOE and the task force believes that African-American history is American history and that's represented in those standards. But at that same meeting, there were many objections. State Representative Anna Eskamani. The notion that, you know, enslaved people benefited from being enslaved um, is an accurate and a scary standard for us to establish in our educational curriculum. And Reverend James Golden. I beg of you, 
to step back and take a moment to be considerate of those who have come before you today to simply ask you to table this for more consideration than you've been able to give it. The Board of Education did not step back and then followed the blowback. Does the Board of Ed have a point that but for one or two phrases, the bulk of these standards are in fact accurate, necessary, and should be non-controversial? I actually don't think so. I don't think they got unlucky. I don't think opponents cherry-picked an infelicitous phrase that the propagators of the standards didn't intentionally put there. The Board of Ed and those who wrote the standards knew what they were doing. They weren't saying slavery was good, as the skills that could be applied for personal benefits clause might indicate. But that is not a benign phrase. That is not a phrase that just wound up in the standards. All of the language of the standards goes towards the direction of minimizing horror and culpability. And it goes towards emphasizing the story of those who fought slavery, black and white, holds them out as heroic. And there are a lot of white people mentioned as leading forces of heroism, from abolitionists to the radical Republicans to specifically mentioned 20th century intellectuals. Clarification one, instruction includes political figures who shape the modern civil rights efforts. Example, Arthur Allen Fletcher, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, President John F. Kennedy, President Lyndon B. Johnson, President Richard Nixon, Senator Everett Dirksen, Mary McLeod Bethune, Shelby Steele, Thomas Sowell, Representative John Lewis. So, of the four non-politicians I mentioned, Bethune, Fletcher, Steele, and Sowell, all of the men are conservative. Steele is known as a great opponent of affirmative action. It's an odd choice, except not when you consider who crafted the standards. When the crafters came under fire, the Board of Education spokesman issued a press release with a list of 16 African Americans who did in fact acquire skills while enslaved. But many of the individuals listed were never enslaved, or in the case of people like Frederick Douglass, did not acquire the skill of literacy during the first nine years of his life when he was a slave. The expert cited behind the embarrassingly inaccurate list is Francis Presley Rice, co-founder of the Yoakum African American History Association and chairperson of the National Black Republican Association. Her LinkedIn page lists her occupation as screenwriter, director, and executive producer with Block Stars with Z Music Television. Her Medium page features this as its most prominent post, unveiled Democrats' racist past, Quote, the Democratic Party is the party of four S's, slavery, secession, segregation, and now socialism. Presley Rice is black, as are many of the other members of the commission who assembled the standards, but other black members there in place quit when they saw the direction of the Board of Education. And of the seven Florida State Board of Education members, there is that one teacher I quoted, and then there's the chair, a lawyer who served as general counsel to Florida Governor-elect Ron DeSantis. There is a serial entrepreneur and technology executive with 25 years in telecom. There's a radiologist. There's the director of public affairs and government relations for Walmart. There's a legal assistant and office manager for her husband's law office. Her husband's a state representative. The law office focuses mostly on gun laws and Second Amendment issues, of which he's a big fan. And there's the vice president and general manager of heart care imaging. Mary Lynn's background brings extensive business experience along with considerable sales and marketing success her Board of Education bio says. This is all and was meant to be a conservative slant on the story of slavery. It is not a denial. It is not necessarily a lie. I mean, there were apprenticeships during slavery and people came out of slavery knowing how to be a blacksmith. And yet, I mostly agree with Kamala Harris. So what? 
what the standards are are sloppily constructed. So one could read the standards as advising Florida's high school students that blacks were responsible in part for the Tulsa race massacres or the or the Ocoee massacre within Florida. True, Kamala Harris is exploiting the standards for political gain, but so what? They're a political document and they are shoddy. The students in Florida, if their teachers follow the standards, will actually get better instruction than I did on the issue of slavery and the African-American experience, but not as good instruction as they could. If Florida had tapped actual experts, they could have crafted a very solid lesson plan and they could have avoided political fights. But avoiding political fights was never part of this curriculum. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca, CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, Peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>